0: Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is so good to be back with you this morning. My name is Doug Baker. I am the interim lead pastor here at uh, Trinity. And, and let me begin this morning by saying uh, thank you to Bill Bourne for speaking last week. Yeah, he did a great job. He gave my wife and I the freedom to go and spend the day with my mom. And she's in Laguna Hills. And so as we were driving down there, we were listening... Uh, to YouTube live listening to the service and to Bill and he got all done. I turned to my wife and I said, man, I wish I could preach like that. <laughs> man, that is really good, passionate and deep. So Bill, wherever you are this morning, thank you for uh, your humble insights and your passionate treatment of God's word. But isn't it good when uh, God's people know and use their giftedness? Just like with Bill, it was so good to hear him. And, uh, and when we do use our gifts. Several things happen. I think they're important for us to realize what's going on when we use our gifts. And one of the very first things is that they delight God. They actually bring joy and delight to His heart. You may not realize this, but there are several places in the Bible where God the Trinity does things together. And you'll, you'll recognize them in uh, Genesis. They create all things together. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we find it at, at the cross... The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together to redeem us. And the creation of the church, they work together. And then again, at end times, we see the return of Christ, the work of the Spirit, and God's power. But one of the things that we don't always notice about the Trinity's work is that He picks your spiritual gift. In fact, the entire Trinity is involved in the gifting of every Christian, You find in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, and you don't have to go there because actually we're just going to pause briefly, but in that passage, we read that the Holy Spirit actually picks out your gift. He does the shopping, looks at all the gifts. He says, ah, this is the one or these are the ones they get to have. Jesus Christ actually picks the location of where you will serve, whether it be the church or a ministry. He specifically picks it out. And God the Father is the one who empowers the gift. He's the one who makes it effective to different degrees. And when we realize that, folks, there are very few things that delight the heart of God is when one of his children recognizes their gift and uses it. This past week, my wife uh, got out some of our placemats. We like to use those on our table, and, and she put this on the table. I said, oh, I haven't seen that one in a while. We bought about six of these at the Hotel Del Coronado gift shop. Now, we'd been bicycling through the area, and we paused actually for ice cream at the store next door, but as we were walking by the gift shop, I, I saw these in the window, and guys, I don't know if it's true for you, but every once in a while when I go shopping for Lisa, I look for something that says, Lisa, Lisa would love me, take me home, and I saw these in the window, and I thought, oh, Lisa would love those. Now, we had to hawk our home to buy them, <laughs> but um, she brought that out. And it just delighted me so much because I had picked it out and bought it and had it for her. And when she pulls it out, it's like, yes, she's using it. And God feels that way about you when you know your gift and you begin to use it. Secondly, the use of your spiritual gift, actually, and this is, by the way, just a long introduction. So if you've got a seatbelt, fasten it. Um, it's not going to take long. But I want you to, to get this as a preview to 2 Corinthians 4. When you use your spiritual gift, it builds the church. And we know this from Ephesians 4, verse 7, and then again in verse 12, where it says, but grace, and that's Paul's term for giftedness, was given to every believer according to the measure of Christ's gift to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And notice what it says, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that every time you use your God-given spiritual gift, the church grows. So think about this. A growing church is not primarily resting on programs or activities, although that's where we use our spiritual gifts. It's not resting on the money, although that's always something that funds it. It's not even resting on great preaching. What the church grows through, the DNA of a church grows through people using their gifts. That should change the way we do church. And look forward to growth. And lastly, it's through serving that we grow spiritually mature. Now, this is this is actually one of those secrets of the Christian life that has been written about in the past, but it's not as well propagated today. And that is, you and I cannot grow spiritually mature without serving. It just doesn't happen. And we know that because of Ephesians four thirteen, where it says that when we serve, it will be until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice the phrase, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So folks, if you want to grow in your faith, you've got to serve. Bible study alone is not enough. As important as that is, it's not enough. God's truth has to be put into action, and it needs to be put into the lives of people. So these are all great reasons to use uh, our spiritual gifts, uh, which, by the way, you can easily know what your gift is. Now, I'll ask people from time to time, so what is your spiritual gift? And after that initial blank stare of a... Uh, oh, I'm not sure. I've taken one of those assessments, but yeah, it was a little hard to figure out. There's three things that you can look for that tell you you're using your spiritual gift, and they're really simple. And it involves, first of all, just doing something at, at ministry, picking out something and trying it. First thing you'll notice is that you enjoy it. God doesn't give stinky gifts. You're going to love doing it. It will please you because God has put this gift in your heart and it's a supernatural ability. And you'll walk away from that moment saying, man, that was a blast. I can't wait to do that again. So you'll enjoy it. The second thing is you'll endure doing it. In other words, you feel like you could do it forever. Now, my mom and dad figured out their spiritual gifts, which was teaching. And they decided to get involved in middle school uh, Sunday school. How many of you love middle school, Sunday school? Don't raise your hands. But it's like, I don't know if I want to be in that area of ministry. It's like, don't put me in the nursery. That's not going to work well. But they taught middle school, Sunday school for 13 years. Never burned out. Loved it. And the only reason they didn't do 14 years was that the middle schoolers they had started with were now married. And they said, would you teach a young marrieds class? Which they did for another 13 years. You can endure in it. So you enjoy it, you endure in it, and lastly, you edify people by it. In other words, they come to you and they say, that was amazing, thank you so much. There's this positive feedback of what you're doing. So it's really good to know your gifts. And by the way, if you haven't discovered your spiritual gift yet, here's what I'd love to have you do. Go out to the pavilion after this service, pick up different flyers from any of the ministries that you think even remotely you might like, go home and pray about it, and then call the ministry back and say, hey, I want to grow in maturity to the fullness of Christ. Can you use me? And they will, and you'll grow. And if you don't enjoy it, <clears throat> endure in it, and edify others, go find a different ministry. It's okay. But here's where we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love to have you open them up to 2 Corinthians 4. <clears throat> and that is, it's good to remember... <clears throat> That at times, serving others can be exhausting. I know, I know, that sounds like I'm throwing shade on serving. And by the way, I just learned that phrase. So if I'm getting it wrong, young people, tell me afterwards. <laughs> I don't want to diminish serving, but it's true that there are times that we get worn out. We get frazzled from taking care of others. We, we get that 3 a.m. parent of a newborn kind of weariness, that 24-7 caregiving of another person kind of collapse. And, and it may be that even here at Trinity, as you've served in some area, uh, it's demanded a lot of you, it's drained you, it's used you up. And, and you might even, God forbid that be the case, be feeling like, I'm not sure I want to keep doing that. Well, the good news is that Paul writes a lot about that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a guy who got tired at times, of doing ministry. And we find that in Second Corinthians four, where it says, he uses this phrase, and you'll see it in your text there, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Now he's, he wrote this to a lot of people. He wrote this to the Ephesians in Ephesians three, thirteen. We were just reading in chapter four where it says, use your gift. Well, in chapter three, verse thirteen, it says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your, to your glory. He says, don't get despondent, don't get faint, don't get worn out, don't get sluggish, don't get on the verge of collapse. He's saying to them, don't throw in the towel. We also see it in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Now we're getting to that next week. But he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he says to him, yeah, you may get physically tired and emotionally frazzled, but remember, God is changing you on the inside, even though the outside body is struggling. We mentioned this morning that this next Saturday we have a recharge event, and Trinity wants to come alongside those of you who serve and say to you, we know it's not always easy, but we want to renew you from the inside out. We want to work with God on this. And I do hope that you would come and let us know you're coming. If you have kids, there's childcare. you know, just tell us you're going to be here. Because we, along with Paul, we don't want you to lose heart. So take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. And let's get into our text this morning. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And he gives us uh, some things here because this is actually a little different reference to not losing heart. He doesn't just tell us, don't lose heart. He says, here's how you can not lose heart. So this section we're going to look at is telling us there are things we can think about, things we can do that help us to regain energy in our serving. Number one, to not lose heart, we have to look at God's mercy to us. Look at God's mercy. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. And I love the fact that he says, therefore, you know, every time you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what is it therefore, right? So it goes back to chapter three, where Bill took us last week and he talked about ministry and he says, this is kind of a churchy word, isn't it? Ministry, but essentially it's serving someone else in a fresh or new way. It's a way of life, serving others. That's what ministry means. And Paul had told them about this new covenant, this new agreement between God and man. No longer, folks, no longer do we have to obey every day the 640 Mosaic laws. I have a hard time following three things in the course of a day. And Jewish people had to keep in mind 640 Old Testament Mosaic laws to be in a right relationship with God. And Paul says, hey, there's a whole new agreement between you and God. That's what covenant means. It's a new way of of dealing with God and God with us. And so he says, we have this ministry that's crystallized in chapter 3, verse 18. So look at that for a second. We, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed Into the same image that is of Christ. From one degree to another. It's a process of change. Little by little, we are changing to become like Christ. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let that sink in for a minute. We should be going, wow, that is an amazing ministry of being transformed into Jesus' likeness from the inside out. We're not being pressured to conform. We are being powerfully pushed from within to live the life of Christ. And more than anything else, Paul knew that this was an act of mercy to him. What is mercy? Well, mercy is for the miserable. Mercy is for those who have done something wrong and they truly deserve getting smacked on the side of the head. And instead of that, they receive something else. So in other words, we experience mercy when we're pulled over by the CHP and instead of giving us a $500 ticket, he gives us a warning. Oh, that's mercy. Now, of course, that's never happened to me, but you you can imagine it, right? Mercy is when... We've been pouring gas onto the lit backyard fire pit. And we only get a first-degree burn and not a third-degree burn. We get something less than we deserve in that moment. It's when we get kindness from somebody who we deeply hurt and offended. And they choose kindness instead of hate or anger. See, these are merciful actions when much worse could have happened. Think about Paul's past. What had he done toward the church? And what did he deserve from God? Well, he deserved judgment, consequences, pain, divine anger. But God held it back from him. So I want to take just a minute with you and rehearse this. Because if we don't understand the mercy of God toward Paul, who's writing this, if we don't understand God's mercy toward you and I, we're really not going to learn how to serve better. It's going to just fly on by us, and we're not going to get it. So we're going to take just a few minutes to read from the New Testament how Paul looked at his past. So you'll find this in the book of Acts, and you'll find it in a couple of other places because this was on Paul's mind a lot. Acts chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is right after Stephen was murdered as the first martyr of the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried uh, Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, this is Paul's name before he became uh, Paul, was ravaging the church entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Can you picture that? The ravaging of the church. Acts 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 26, verses 9 and 10. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them as a part of the Sanhedrin. He voted that they would be killed. And I punished them, often in the synagogues, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So that's what he did. That's what Acts records him doing. But then, as he writes the, the epistles to the church, listen to this in Galatians and Philippians and Timothy. He says in Galatians 1, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He writes in Philippians 3, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In 1 Timothy 1, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. God held back from Paul the things that he richly deserved. And he writes to us this morning, and he says, in this ministry, which is the gospel ministry, what the church gives to others, the service we give, he says, it's important to receive and think about the mercy of God. So, this morning, can I... Help us think about that personally. How has God been merciful to you regarding your past sins, mistakes, errors, and wrongdoings? I thought about that this week for my life. And it humbled me that God would be so kind to me. Because as Paul writes, and David writes actually, my sins are always before me. I don't know about you folks, but I can look back at my life and I can remember things that I've said, and things that I've thought, and actions that I've taken that I deeply regret. And I just wish I could get them back. You ever feel like that? And I deserved far worse than the things that happened to me as consequences. And that was God's mercy. And as I contemplate those things, as you contemplate those things, it's not intended to make us regretful. It's intended to make us grateful. That God would be merciful to us. Paul oftentimes reminded his disciples of how merciful God had been to them. If it's not on your handout, you might put down Ephesians chapter 6, 10 and 11. And he writes to them and he says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice his next phrase. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I almost just want to pause for a moment to let this sink into our hearts because, folks, we, we have to begin with the mercy of God. It's so good that he would hold back his judgment from us. And once we realize that, do you know what it does to us? Out of gratefulness, it compels us to serve this merciful, kind-hearted God. So to not lose heart, we need to first of all look at God's mercy to us. But secondly, we need to look at God's ministry through us. And this is what Paul does in verses 1 and 2. See in your text there? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but... We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's ministry also encouraged him. What he was actually doing, it was the best work in the world. It was announcing to a desperate world, a dark world, how they could be freed from sins, freed from Satan, live in the light of God's gospel. Think about it for a second what is the best job you've ever had? And I hope you have something in mind What's the best job you've ever had and what made it that was it was it the hours or the commute my uh, my first pastorate my commute was five minutes It's like wow, how can that be? Was it the people you worked with maybe it was the support of your managers. Maybe it was the pay. What made it so good? Paul looks at his work and he says, best job ever. And think about all that he suffered. Best job ever. Why is that for Paul? Well, it was because of what God had to say. It was the truth of God's word. Notice how he says here, I'm not going to tamper with this. It's so good, I'm going to resist the the desire to make it cunningly better than it is. I'm not going to alter it in any way. I want the truth to speak for itself. And his audience could see by its effects in their lives that it truly was good. We have that same ministry. There are four places in the New Testament, we won't look at them this morning, where it talks about spiritual gifts. Write these down if they're not on your notes. They're really easy to remember, especially if you like math. Math. 1 Corinthians 12. All about spiritual gifts. Romans 12, right? Ephesians 12. Now, no, you know there's no 12 chapters in Ephesians. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. If you want to learn about spiritual gifts, that's all you need to do is go to those four passages. And each one of them describes gifts, describes how they're to be used in the, in the church, and all of them talk about how they are changing you and changing the church. This last week, Lisa and I got to go to the back-to-school jam to pack the backpacks. This was with our uh, daughter and, and two grandsons, five and three. It was a riot. We walked into the room, there was like 700 backpacks, and the boys go, wow, and pick whatever color you like there, and they're grabbing them and going through and stuffing in supplies, and it was so much fun to do that, but do you realize, now you may not realize the stats, I want to tell you what happened that day. They gave away 950 backpacks. Take your right arm, put it out, don't hit the person next to you. Over your back, pat yourself on the back. You guys did that. You gave the money, you bought the backpacks, you may have even stuffed them with supplies. 950 backpacks, 100 new pairs of shoes, 100 food boxes, 500 hot dogs from the Redlands Police, 22 brand-new bikes, and 100 gospel books penned by our own Steve Springstead, and lots of Starbucks coffee. Allison, the Micah House, the Soto Sisters, Andrew, and you and I changed the lives of all of these children. And it was a lot of work, but it's what ministry is. You ever heard the word deacon? Can I see hands? Ever heard the word deacon? Okay, if you're a church person, you probably have. Did you know that the word is actually two Greek words? Dia, konos. We say diakonos. It's actually diakonos. Those two Greek words are really interesting because the word dia means through and the word konos means Dust. And it was used in the New Testament to talk about someone who was really on a ground level, in the dust, working through stuff. In fact, one particular author, he has a blog, uh, I was reading it this week, says, the Greek word diakonos is this compound word, which can be translated as raising up dust by moving in a hurry as to minister. I kick up the dust in the joyful service of my king. It's what I love to do. I jump to it. I run at your word. So here's a rundown of how servants operate. First, real servants are self-forgetful. They look to the other's needs rather than to their own. Secondly, real servants operate as stewards. They're not owners. They're stewards. Third, real servants concentrate on their own responsibility and not what other servants are doing or not doing. Fourth, real servants base their identity upon their master, Jesus Christ, and nowhere else. And fifth, real servants think of ministry as an opportunity, not an obligation. In fact, it's really fascinating. Do you realize the very first thing we're going to hear when you step into heaven? Is Jesus saying, well done, thou good and faithful diakonos, servant of the dust, who gets into the nitty-gritty and does things to meet the needs of others. Well done, thou good and faithful Diaconus. And when we think about how powerful this ministry is, it fuels us to not lose heart. But the last part is the best. We saved it for last. To not lose heart, look at God's miraculous enlightenment for anyone who serves. Verses three through six. And even if our gospel is veiled, which Bill talked about last week, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's kind of a mouthful, but it's powerful. Satan does not want people to see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your diaconos for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In our world today, Satan's primary purpose is to keep those who don't yet know Jesus in the dark about it. To blind their eyes literally It says people in the world who don't have Christ as their Lord and Savior are in the darkness, and they belong to Satan. That's a horrible thought. But the reality of it is, this is what he seeks to do to keep people blinded to the gospel. But we get to proclaim that enlightening message. Look at verses 4 and 6. The gospel is described here as light. You ever been to a Christmas candlelight service where you all held a candle? you said to the kids watch out for the wax you know don't let it drip on things picture yourselves this morning holding those candles can you put your hand out like this there's your candle and it's burning brightly and you know in a candlelight service they dim the lights and you can see all of the stuff and then you sing silent night as we go out into the street This is the church with our lights. And and Paul uses this word light, but the Greek word is photon. Photon. It's the Greek word photismon. We get photon from that. So I looked that up this week. I'm not a science guy. I did the soft sciences. But it's a fascinating word. Symmetry magazine, which is published by the U.S. Department of Energy, writes this. Radio waves, microwaves, infrared, ultraviolet light, X-rays, gamma rays, all of these are light, and all of them are made up of photons. Photons are at work all around us. They travel through connected fibers to deliver Internet cable and cell phone signals. Praise God for photon, right? They are used in plastic upcycling to break down objects into small building blocks that can be used in new materials. They're used in hospitals, in beams that target and destroy cancerous tissues. Jennifer Dion, who is uh, an associate professor of material science at uh, Stanford University and a researcher in photonics, says this. Across the electromagnetic spectrum, photons can provide us with so much information about the world. And guys, can you throw the slide up there of uh, photons? Light... Photons, listen to this, they are a regent king in chemistry that people don't think about. People often think about adding new chemicals to enable a certain reaction or controlling the temperature or pH of a solution, but light, photons, can bring a whole new dimension and an entirely new toolkit. Photons are always full of surprises. And Paul then says... As God said, let there be light. Why would Paul quote Genesis chapter 1, the creation of our world, when he's talking about the gospel? Because his thought goes back to Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and it separated the light and the darkness. Why does he use this idea of a brilliant, blazing, photonic light Well, do you remember what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? God stopped him in his tracks with this blinding, blazing photismon this light that brought him to his knees and blinded him. And later in the story, when Ananias comes to him and says, Brother Saul, God has told me he has plans for you. He wants you to share the gospel. You can see again. And what happens to him? Scales fall from his eyes, and it says he could see again. And notice the immediate response. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the guy that was wrecking havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What happened to Paul in that moment was the brilliant fautisman of God penetrated into his life, blinding him, but then releasing him and beginning this inner transformation of light from darkness that compelled him to preach the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he goes back to Genesis because in Genesis, there is this process that he wants people to hear about. Can you throw the slide up there for us, guys? I want to work off of that. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. The earth, notice, the earth was without form and void. Now, uh, theologians argue about what is that? But Paul is going to use that formless emptiness to talk about a non-Christian life. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verses 3 and 4, please. Do we have those? Yeah. And God said, let there be photismon," and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Paul goes back to Genesis as this template to teach us about the new creation, what has happened in your life and mine when we came to Christ. Let's throw the other slide up there. Look at this. What happens in Genesis? Well, you have the creation of the world. You have light, then you have the heavens being revealed, then you have life itself in the ocean and in the skies and on the earth. There's fruitfulness of all the plants, and then humanity is created. Paul says that template, that pattern, is what happens in the life of a non-Christian when they come to faith in Christ. Paul says, this is what happened to me. There's a new genesis in our hearts. There's this enlightening of God. We see God. He gives new life. It produces a fruitfulness, and it creates a new humanity. Do you see the parallel? Do you see why he would go back to Genesis? Because he wanted people to realize that the gospel message recreates humanity, and this is what Satan is so opposed to, a new humanity that would worship God and follow him. He's opposed to the spiritual formation of our being, of God's work within humanity to change us spiritually at the core level of our being. He wants to discredit and delay the gospel message. And that is the spiritual battle of our day, to resist that. Last week, Bill gave us some homework. Do you remember what it was? I'm not going to ask you to tell me but I remember when I was a student, it was like, oh, shoot, I forgot that assignment. So I want to give it to you again. He said, would you talk together about how God is transforming you and others? That's a great assignment. I also am a teacher at Biola University, so guess what? I want you to do it this week. Again. Talk about how has the light penetrated your life? How has God begun to recreate in you a new humanity? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Where is the mercy of God in your life? How has he been kind to you and held back from you the consequences of your past actions? What is the ministry you're involved in? Is it this glorious ministry of bringing light into darkness, transformation into stagnant existence? How is the light being used in your life? We're going to end this service with the song that Bill sang for us this last week. And I guess I'm old enough to remember it as well. (laughs) But it's so good. I stand in awe of you. And as the worship team comes up, we're going to invite you once they're up here to stand and sing this song. And then when we are done with that, I'd like to have us stay standing and take some time as a congregation to pray together, individually, not aloud, but individually, all together, to pray together and thank God in our own hearts, in our own minds and thoughts for his mercy to us and for his ministry through us and how it is plucking people out of Satan's grasp, opening their eyes and changing their hearts. So would you stand together and let's sing this song and then we'll wrap up our service.